This is such an interesting season for those of us who teach the Word of God and preach the Gospel. In the live services, I'm preaching in front of people who are wearing masks and I don't see their facial reactions. And I realize that in this context, I'm preaching in front of people who are probably wearing pajamas and <laughs> all kinds of different postures. But I look forward to seeing your smiling faces, maybe even next Sunday. We'll say more about that at the end of the service today. Now, can you think of a time in your life when someone said something that changed your life, hopefully for the better? Maybe it was, will you marry me? Or possibly, you know, I know a job you should apply for. Or possibly it was just a word of affirmation or encouragement. You can do this. Now, get in the game. Some of us were changed by a friend who simply said to us, come to church with me. It always amazes me how our lives turn on such very small hinges, often just a few words. Well, today we read of two words spoken by Jesus to a very lost man who ended up writing the first of the New Testament Gospels. Luke chapter 5, verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is a Christian? Our passage today goes a long way toward helping us answer that question. Levi, who is also known as Matthew, is our representative example of the Christian. The Christian, as we see here, is three things. But before we get to those three things, we should point out that there is one thing a Christian surely is not. The Christian is not self-righteous. By that I mean he or she does not consider himself as worthy or good in and of himself or by his own righteous life. Not self-righteous. Irreligious folk sometimes criticize churchgoers by saying, well, Christians aren't perfect either, you know, and well, I do know that is quite obvious. So they say the church is full of hypocrites. Well, by definition, a hypocrite says he is one thing when he really is another. The scoffer sees churchgoers who sin and says, ha, you're a hypocrite. But did these churchgoers ever claim not to be sinners? The idea or assumption behind the accusation and the assumption behind our society's view of religion is that it's the good people that go to church. Religion is for good people, but if there is one thing the Christian never claims to be, it's being good. I mean, I mean pick your Christian. How about Peter? There in Luke 5, 8, we read that he said, I am a sinful man. Paul referred to himself as the chief of sinners. Augustine, yes, the saint, said, God save me from that wretched or wicked man myself. John Knox, the founder of Presbyterianism, said, I find nothing in me but corruption. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said, my whole heart is altogether corrupt and abominable. And I'll, I'll stop there. But, oh, friend, do you, do you see the point I'm trying to make? The last thing that a Christian is is self-righteous or good. That's the first thing he is not because Jesus has nothing to do with such as these. He said he didn't come for the righteous but for sinners. And that's the first thing a Christian is. He or she is a sinner. If you are not, 
then you are overqualified to be one of us. The Christian is but the dirty soil in which God plants the glorious plant of redemption in our hearts. Now, Levi is, is outstanding. Outstanding in that he is an outstanding sinner. This man, Levi, would have been categorically the vilest man in Capernaum. Verse 27 tells us why that is when it says simply, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi. That's all you need to know about Levi, that he was by occupation what they called a publican, not a republican, a publican, a tax collector, and therefore to the Jew, the most wretched person imaginable. Why? I mean, many of us know Mark Sharpnack, who worked a long time for the Internal Revenue Service, and he's a nice guy. Now, this is why. At the time of Christ, Palestine was under the domination, under the, the domination, I should say, of, of Rome. And Rome charged taxes. To get their taxes, they sold tax franchises to local Jews, and this franchise enabled the publican to collect all the various taxes and with the authority of the state extort a considerable amount for his own bank account. Rome didn't care how much he took just so he brought in the appropriate amount of taxes. So publicans were notorious cheats. Most of them accepted bribes from the rich. But what made the office itself despicable to the Jew was that such a man would be a traitor to his own people. He had become a stoolie for their oppressive masters. He was viewed as anti-Israel. And, and since most Jews believed that the taxes or the tithes should only go to God, he was also viewed as anti-religious. He was hated terribly. The Jews barred him from the synagogue. He was treated like an unclean beast. And you know, as you read the New Testament, that the riffraff, the social scum of that day, were labeled as publicans and sinners. You could be nothing worse than a tax collector, and that's what Levi was. Alfred Edersheim is a renowned expert in first century Jewish life, and he says there were actually two types of tax collectors. The first was, was referred to by the word goodbye, which is what you say when you pay your taxes, you know, goodbye. Uh, the goodbye collected the normal taxes the land tax, the income tax, the poll tax. The poll tax was just a tax for being alive, and there was only one way to get a deduction from that. If you were dead, you didn't have to pay the tax. So the goodbye collected those taxes. The other kind of tax collector was called the mocus. The mocus collected duties, sales tax, if you will, import tax, export tax, taxes on business. In fact, the mocus could charge almost any tax he desired, and so the abuses of that office were incredible. It was the mocus who had a tax office that was stationed typically at the conflux of the roads where he could inspect everything traveling in and out of a district. Levi has such an office. He probably taxed all the businesses around the Sea of Galilee. He was a mocus, and if the goodbye was hated, the mocus hated even more. But there's more. Edersheim tells us that there were two types of the mocus, the greater mocus and the smaller mocus, and the great mocus owned the tax franchise. But to keep his respectability, he hired others to do the actual collecting. It was the small mocus who did the dirty work, revealing that he had no concern for what people would think of him, no shame. And so the small mocus was hated even more than the greater mocus or the goodbye. What was Levi? Well, he was found in the office doing the work, he is apparently a small mocus. He was the little mocus of Capernaum. 
So now do you see, he was the most despised man in the city, the lowest of the low. The rabbi said that for a little locust to repent is well nigh impossible. He is the sinner without peer, and that's why it is so shocking when Jesus says to this fellow, follow me. What's the point? Jesus reaches down with his saving love to anyone, no matter how rotten. In fact, it seems the worse off, the better. And this totally shatters the Judaistic system of works righteousness. Levi was certainly a sinner, and Jesus says, I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Paul said in 1 Timothy 1.15, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. So don't miss this. The common religious idea is, well, God helps those who help themselves. Whereas the truth is that God helps those who have almost destroyed themselves, men and women who cannot help themselves. Again, the Christian is a sinner. Luke 15, 1, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him, to Jesus, to listen to him. And so you feed one duck and they all come flocking around. That passage goes on. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner than over, who repents than over righteous persons, 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The key is in that last phrase, righteous persons. And you could put the words think they just before need. It's those who think they need no repentance. Heaven has no interest in the self-righteous. The Christian must be a sinner. In Luke 18, verse 9, you're familiar with this story, I think, that Jesus told the parable about people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Christ's commentary on the story, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. The message is clear, isn't it? The Christian is a sinner and knows it and aches over that. So I have bad news for you, you super good people out there. You're out of luck. I'm sorry. But wait, I have good news for you too. You really aren't good. You really aren't righteous. Surprise! Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that you were born dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. By nature. Why was Levi a sinner? Because he inherited it. He was born that way. It was, 
You ready for this? It was Levi's jeans. Yes. Now, we're all in this boat. And it really doesn't matter if your daddy is a preacher and your wife's daddy is a preacher or if you've been baptized and you pray. You were born in sin. And you are no Christian until you are born again. And all this explains why the gospel must be positively negative because unless you know you're a sinner, you can never be a saint. Well, the second thing we learn from our story is that a Christian is one who is called and called by Christ. Jesus is the caller. Verse 27 says, Jesus went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. He noticed him. It's, not, it's amazing, isn't it, that the Lord who, of the glory who spoke galaxies into existence notices any single human individual. David had said in Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you are ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, that you take thought of him? But God does take thought of us. And in our story, he notices Matthew. He sees Levi. And what do you think Jesus saw? A woman approached a uh, man sitting on a bench at a retirement community. And she looked at the older gentleman and said, You look just like my second husband. And uh, the man said to her, Oh, really? How many husbands have you had? And she said, One. <laughs> she saw him for what he could be more than what he just was. Everyone else looked at Levi and saw a weaselly, greedy tool of Rome. Jesus saw a disciple who would be the chronicler of the great king and write a magnificent gospel. When Jesus calls a man, he doesn't just see what he is, but also what he can be through the grace of Jesus. He said, follow me. This is the call, the blessed invitation. Now, what do you think would have happened if Levi had decided not to accept the invitation, not to follow Christ. Would that, have, would that have hurt the Lord's feelings? Would he have negotiated with Levi? No. But to raise the question, what if, is really to misunderstand Jesus. There was no possibility of him not following. No more chance than Lazarus had of saying no when Christ called him back from the dead. When God said, let there be light, could the universe respond back, no? Of course not. The voice of divine power accomplishes its purpose. So when Jesus says, follow me, the next verse says he left everything behind, got up and began to follow him. He answers the call, apparently without a word. Edersheim writes this, He spoke not a word because his soul was in the speechless surprise of unexpected grace. Amy Carmichael wrote a little point in which she said, I heard him call, come follow that was all. My gold grew dim. My heart went after him. I rose and followed. That was all. Would you not follow if you heard him call? The next verse, Levi gave a big reception for him in his house, and there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Interesting. Levi responds to the grace he has been shown. He did that by trying to introduce Jesus to others. He had a dinner, and you notice who came? Great crowd, tax collectors, reclining at the table with him. What's worse than one tax collector? A whole room full of tax collectors. These were Levi's people. The other Gospels describe the group as consisting of tax collectors and sinners. No respectable folks at this particular event. No, just the dregs of society. Nobody else would come. 
But here's a model of how we can see persons come to Christ. One sinner becomes a Christian and, and goes on to introduce his and her acquaintances and friends to Jesus. It is the new converts that really produce the contacts for the gospel. After being a Christian a long time, it's easy for us to have mostly Christian friends and thus limited opportunities for outreach. If you still have non-Christian relationships, leverage those to bring Christ to your buddies. If you have no such relationships, seek them out. Well, some of us have problems loving the unsavory types. Verse 30, the Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Yeah, he did that. Jesus became known as the friend of sinners. Now we sing of it. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. And Jesus answered and said, It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. So why? Did he eat and drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Now, Jesus did not say, because those are the guys that really know how to party. He didn't do it for fun. And I say this because some of you possibly enjoy ungodly company and appeal to the example of Jesus, but the commands of Scripture hold up. 1 Corinthians 15, 33, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. Christ's example here is no excuse for disobeying the command to stand apart and to be holy and not walk into the midst of temptation. You can go into the company of sinning persons, if you are there, to serve them. If you enjoy their company and prefer it to that of believers, well, that concerns me. But if you can go among sinners, with a grieving heart in order to help them. Have at it. That is what Christ did. Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. And that makes perfect sense. Nobody asks a doctor, why are you always hanging around at hospitals and with sick people? Jesus is the physician of the soul. He has healed, in chapter 5 alone, a leper and a paralytic and now a little mocus, and he is out to heal more sinners. If you're not one, if you're healthy, you don't need Christ. Scoffers say, you know, Christianity is just a crutch. But when you are crippled, a crutch is a very valuable thing to have. Healing is even better. And that is what our Lord gives. Thirdly, now, the Christian is a sinner and is called. But is called to what? Does verse 32 say, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to church? No. I once met a pastor who laid claim to having 200 conversions in his church over the previous year. And when I asked him how he defined a conversion, he said, well, somebody that wasn't going to church and now they are. But Christ didn't call men and women to church. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to faith. Well, he did do that, but I fear that we can so talk about faith that we forget the other side of the conversion coin, which is repentance. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The third thing a Christian is then is repentant. And if Jesus comes to call men to repentance, then that has to be at the heart of our message. Leave it out and you may get a lot of supposed Christians who are deceived and so die in their sin. What is the prescription of the divine physician? He says, repent and turn from your sin. That is the way to healing. In Acts 11, Peter calls that the repentance that leads to life. Preaching repentance. It's not a negative thing. It is the most positive thing imaginable because Jesus came to call all men to repent. And he says that unless one repents, that person perishes. But to those who admit their problems, 
that their problems are rooted in their own sin and their own rebellion. To those who own their guilt and look to Jesus in faith, Jesus offers forgiveness. To the Levites and the Mary Magdalene's and the Saul's, that is to sinners. Look at what repentant Levi does in verse 28. It says, he left everything and got up and began to follow him. Matthew would have left a lot. Tax collectors were rich people, and it says he left it all. The fishermen did the same thing when they went to follow Jesus. We're told that in verse 11, but maybe Matthew had more to leave. For one thing, he couldn't go back. The fish would always be there, but Rome would replace him immediately. But no job would stop Levi from knowing Christ, from following him, from gaining the pearl of great price. And the real evidence of repentance is, do you leave your sin? Levi left it. Repentance always costs us something, and that is why it is tough, especially for the well-to-do. But Levi left everything for Jesus. He lost a career, but he gained a destiny. He lost his riches, but he gained a spiritual fortune. So Levi serves us well as an example of a Christian, a repentant sinner called by Christ. And you know what happened when Levi repented? I can only speculate about what happened around Capernaum and what happened in his family, but I do know what happened in heaven. There was a party! There was a joyful song because Jesus tells us that the angels rejoice anytime one sinner repents. So by God's grace, let's keep the angels busy singing praise to the one who comes to call, not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would make us very sensitive and aware of our sin and our need for the great physician. Lord, we pray that you would be calling men and women, boys and girls to yourself and let us and our loved ones hear that very call and then rejoice that it is our privilege, O oh God, to follow you in faith and to cause the angels in heaven to rejoice when we repent and when we lead others to repent as well. We bless you for this gift because it leads us to you and it leads us to life. Amen.